even through the worst situations of our lives, he can turn those things into our good. And I actually see how having the loss of my daughter has helped me once again, see life differently, has helped me to love people differently. It's helped me to pour into people, you know, better. And it's, it's caused me to, typically the long-term effects of what I dealt with has helped me to become a better person. So even, even if it, I didn't have many factors, but the only factor was God, that's all I really needed. Brian and I connected at the end of last year and totally geeked out about podcasting and education and the importance of leading with love. Brian is a teacher and a youth pastor and has recently become the host of a podcast called Madcasters Make a Difference. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots that we make in order to keep moving forward. Many experiences in Brian's life have led him towards his calling as a mentor, but it was a tragic loss in 2017 that led him down a path towards even deeper self-discovery and growth that has carried him to where he's at today. In 2017, Brian and his wife experienced the loss of their daughter after an emergency C-section. In this very vulnerable conversation, Brian shares his grief story and his lessons from losing one of his greatest loves and how he's channeled this loss into the work that he does today. Please be aware in advance that this conversation discusses child loss at birth, suicidal thoughts, and drinking through grief. We start the conversation today with a pretty special birthday story. After starting a new job at a school for troubled youth, which Brian calls youth who are misunderstood. I love that, by the way. His students and new colleagues worked together to have Brian's wife show up on his birthday to surprise him. Just when he thought it couldn't get any better than that, she had something else up her sleeve for when he got home. You know, I thought that was it, ready to go. But then I get home and my wife, you know, she's like, she's looking at me, hey, and I'm like, all right, cool. I'm about to have another birthday present. And I'm trying to figure out what this is, right? And so she brings me into into the room and there's two boxes in the room. One that actually looked really good and the other one that looked kind of plain. <laughs> and so I'm like, and she's like, uh, which one do you want? Which one do you want first? I was like, ah, uh, let me get the good looking one because that one looks kind of whack. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, for real, that's how you going to say it. I'm like, let me just, and so I take it out. And to this day, I still have that watch. That watch was just, oh, it was beautiful. I loved it. It was, it was different. It fit my style. And I really enjoyed it. So I put it on, you know, and I said to myself, well, what could get any better than that? Mm -hmm. It's, we weren't making that much money at the time either. And so, you know, for me, it was like, oh, you already put that much money into getting me this watch. I'm not expecting anything greater than that. And so she gives me this box and I'm just like, all right, cool. Well, let me see what's inside this little box. And inside the box was a onesie and I was just like what is like what is this and then like it just hit me oh my goodness it was just I don't even know I don't know how to express it It was just it was a moment of pure bliss Mm -hmm. when I actually realized what she was trying to tell me and I just like fell back on the bed and, and I started laughing I started like smiling so much I couldn't stop laughing and my wife was like, why are you laughing? So I was like, I can't stop laughing. 
<laughs> and I was just, I was literally just in a moment of pure bliss, mm-hmm. you know, to find out that we're about to have a child, you know, on my birthday. I, I always tell her that was the best birthday present I ever had. Mm-hmm. She found out after, um, after the surprise birthday party that she had at the school, she said she felt a little weird. She went back home. She went to go get a test. And so she found out also uh, that that same day. So that day was just a very colossal day for my life. Holy. And here's me wondering if you, what would have happened or how it would have gone if you had have opened the the one box first? It would have been like, oh, it's just a watch. <laughs> right, right. I would have been like, I'll get this watch away from you. Yeah, me. exactly. I'm going to be a dad. <laughs> right, right. That's exact. No, I'm serious. I'm happy actually I got the watch first. Me too. The watch was definitely the lesser present. So, yeah. <laughs> that is so beautiful. So, how her pregnancy was good. You're excited. You're planning for a family. Yeah. So basically, you know, throughout the whole time, there was nothing that showed any signs of negativity throughout the whole pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Wife was doing very well. She was, you know, I mean, besides the first trimester, you know, a lot of the first trimester things are a little hard on the body. But besides that, she was doing fine. She was eating well. The ultrasounds were, were looking great. Everything. Uh, there, was, there wasn't this sense of, of a warning for anything of the sort. And so, you know, we're coming into February. Now it's March. And we're getting ready for the, the date, which was going to be April 7th. And funny enough, April 7th is our wedding anniversary. No way. Yeah. So... That was, uh, I got I got the great news on my birthday and she was supposed to come out on our wedding anniversary. So mm-hmm. it was just, it felt too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And and so now it's March. I had now just been given a new position. I started working as a campus administrator for the school. I was out on a Wednesday to go to our principal meetings. And so I'm, I'm gone about maybe two, two and a half hours away from my home. My wife gives me a call. She says, hey, I'm not feeling too well, but I think it's Bricks and Hicks. She was like, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to go to the doctor. I was like, you sure? Maybe you should just go just in case. She was like, no, I think I'm going to be fine. I was like, all right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I kind of was just like worrying, but you know, my wife is a very strong, understanding woman. So I, I was fine with that. Uh, her mom came though, and her mom is a very headstrong individual. So once she said, yeah, I'm feeling like it. Her mom was like, okay, we're going straight to the doctor. And she was just like, mom, I'm fine. She was like, no, 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 we're going straight to the doctor. So they went to the hospital and basically upon arrival of the hospital, uh, her blood pressure had gone up. I think, I think it was over it was something over 200. Just so you understand, it was just, it was alarmingly high. So, you know, I got the call and she was like, yeah, I am in labor. And and so I was like, okay, you know, she's in labor. And the doctor told me, they said that she, you know, her blood pressure was pretty high for, for where, for where she should be. Uh, so they had to give her, uh, I believe magnesium and something else to kind of try to put it down. Um, so, you know, we're halfway through that process. And so now I'm with her after the drive, the two and a half hour drive. I'm with her. I'm in the hospital. My my two brother-in-laws, my sister-in-law was was there as well. We're pretty much seeing how things are going, ready to for you know dilation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but nothing still felt alarming 
at that moment. So a couple of hours in, basically the doctor was like, he told us that there was, yeah, basically the doctor said that there there's going to be a need for, for a C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife did not want to do a C-section. Her whole plan was to, was to have a natural birth. But when I spoke to the doctor, just kind of like on the side, the way he didn't tell me that it could possibly uh, lead to death, but the way she said it, it was it was pretty much a strong warning. Like if if you don't, something could happen. And so when I spoke to my wife, I said, "Hey, uh, I think you should sign it. I think we should get the C-section, and you know, just just go through that process. I know that's not what you wanted, but let's try to do the safe thing here." So gets through the process. Uh, she signs the paperwork. And they're doing a C-section. And basically, you know, for me, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I was like, if she can go through the C-section, I, I could see it at least. And so I actually watched the whole operation um, from the time that they allowed me to, to come into the room. I actually had one of my students who called me uh, before I entered the room. And he said, uh, you know, he was just saying how he can't wait to, to see my daughter, everything of the sort, and it's going to be great. And he was wondering if she was out yet. And I was like, no, but I'll, I'll definitely call you when she does. And so, you know, I go into the into the room, the operating room. I'm sitting next to my wife. You know, she's kind of nervous, but she's okay. And they're operating. Things are moving well. Nothing is happening. Nothing is happening in, in, in a negative sense. And then they pull her out from our wife. And when I saw her, like she breathed. I started going into tears because I was just so happy. I was like, wow, she looks beautiful. And that was like one of the things that came into my mind, how great it was to see life in that sense. And then from that very moment uh, of me crying for for tears of joy, I didn't get to, I didn't hear her cry. And so it's about a minute and the doctors have her on the, uh, on their table for the babies and I'm not hearing a cry. And then I started realizing they called another doctor, they called another nurse and I'm sitting back and I'm understanding what's happening, but I'm still in complete shock because in my opinion, in my head, I'm wondering, is this, is this a movie? Like, is this really happening that my child hasn't screamed yet, hasn't cried yet, hasn't done anything yet? And I was just more so in disbelief. But then, you know, my wife started asking me questions. Hey, you know, babe, is, is, is she okay? What's going on? I, ha- I think she even mentioned I didn't hear her cry. Like, and my response was always, don't worry, babe, everything's going to be okay. I started praying out loud while we were in the room. Uh, I even started singing a song, um, which is still my favorite song to this day because of of that experience. It, the, the song is called uh, Trusting in Jesus, basically. Oh, sorry. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. And I, and I kept saying, kept singing that chorus, kept singing that chorus. But 10 minutes went by and nothing w- was happening. And I, to be honest, um, seeing someone trying to push life into your kid um, at that at that position is not something that I would ever wish for anyone to have to see because it was just, it was a very painful thing to to know that life is not there and they're trying to do everything that they can in order for, for them to give her back that air or that breath. 
20 minutes came by, 30 minutes came by. You know, I kept praying, I kept pleading, but I kept my composure, you know, the whole time. Because for me, unless I know something is definite, I don't ever necessarily crumble in that sense. And so I always wait until I get a complete affirmation, either yes or no. And so kept going, kept going 25, 30, 35 minutes, 40. And then it was a 45 minute mark. That's when the doctors, uh, they put down whatever utensils they were using. You saw the nurses pretty much stop and you saw them crying. You saw the doctor kind of put her head down. You saw the people who were even working on my wife to stitch her back up. They kind of froze for a second, but then started working back. And then they started walking closer towards me as if ready to tell me and my wife what was happening. I already knew. I could just, you mean, you could read the room. And, uh, but my wife, she didn't know yet. And so I wanted me to tell her, not them. So I told him, hold on. I said, can you just cart her back to the room? And, you know, the last thing she told me before she walked out uh, or before they carted her out, she was like, uh, babe, is everything okay? And I was like, babe, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. And I said that not because... I didn't know that our daughter had just passed away before my very eyes. But I always have this, this strong faith and I, and I have this understanding that because I still have life in my lungs, because we're still able to move forward, it doesn't mean that this situation won't be the hardest situation we'll ever deal with. But I still knew in my head, I said, everything's going to be okay. They carted her out. The door closed, and I just crumbled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never cried that pain in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a deep cry. It was a, I, I don't even know how to really express this, but, you know, holding on to my kid, her body was still warm. You know, even thinking about this now, it mm-hmm. still sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, um, it, it, was, it was tough. It was tough. It was the hardest experience I ever dealt with in my life. And uh, her name was Cornelia Marjorie Rose St. Louis. So Marjorie is my wife's grandmother's name and Rose is my my grandmother's name. So Cornelia was her first name. Marjorie Rose is her middle name. And St. Louis is my last name. Uh, I always say her name because, you know, some people, they'll say, you know, Levi made you a father. And I always tell them no. Uh, my son Levi now he's he's a year and a half uh, but I always say that Cornelia is the one who made me a father just a father that I wasn't able to necessarily be a father to but she made me a father uh, the other issue we had was so my wife had preeclampsia mm-hmm. and she had also a severe form of that I can't, I can't remember the exact name of it but it was a severe form of preeclampsia my daughter, she had a condition that was missed uh, throughout the whole nine months. And so basically, once she was cut from the cord from my wife, that's where she lost a connection to, to life. She lost connection to um, being able to breathe, everything. So she was alive as long as she was connected to my wife. And once they disconnected her, she wasn't able to, to live on her own. But that was missed uh, throughout the, I think, even the second ultrasound. 
I, I don't know. To this day, maybe I wonder if, if it's something that should have been caught, but I don't I don't try to to revel in that thought mm-hmm. process more so. Uh, but because of this, now my wife was fighting for her life and she almost passed away in, in those period of time because her blood pressure was quite alarming um, for, for what it was. And so it was very difficult for her to understand what was going on or anything of the sort. Mm-hmm. But after I found out, um, I did go to my wife and I did tell her what happened. And so she heard it from me first and it, it, it was very hard uh, for her. But once again, it didn't fully hit through because of some of the drugs that were that were in her system because of everything that they were giving her for for the pregnancy because of everything that was happening in her system. So it wasn't until maybe day two, day three that everything hit for her and she was out of of like that loopiness mm-hmm. from what whatever the doctors gave her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's when we were able to really connect and mourn this together. So yeah, it was a it was a very painful time in my life, as is granted, but it also was a time that I think helped me to understand the true meaning of life and really start to care for people in a different way that I've never done before. There was quite a few experiences, even in the midst of that as well, that I had to deal with, with family, with friends, with strangers who want to give their two cents because everyone wants to say something when someone's grieving. But for me, I just knew that whatever we were going through, we were going to do it together. Mm-hmm. And we weren't going to break ourselves because of, of this experience. And actually, um, I can proudly say that my wife and I grew closer together through that experience. Where I, And I know that many times those types of experiences actually break people apart. And actually, the nurses said that quite a few times. They said they were wondering how we were dealing with this. And they saw the way that we would interact with each other. They saw the way that I was, you know, dealing with the situation. Though I was crying a lot, but I was still, I think I think they said I was still positive in my tears or something, or something mm-hmm. of the sort. And, and yeah, it was just, it was a very hard time, but it was a time that I, I took that as a place for me to grow in my mm-hmm. life. I don't know. Maybe I gave too much right there. Sorry. No, no, I'm sitting here (laughs) taking it in. My heart aches for you and your wife. That is a lot to process. That's a lot to digest for you to have been there and to witness that. Yeah. You you wouldn't wish something like that on your worst enemy. No. You've experienced something really, really tragic. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate that. The optimism that the nurses alluded to mm-hmm. is something that I've even noticed in our short and quick interactions. <laughs> <laughs> you're an incredible human. And I feel like the, the work that you're doing and the love with which you lead your life mm-hmm. is incredible. And when you talk about hitting such a low that could go in so many different ways for different people who are wired differently. So right, right. I'm so curious on how you worked through your grief, both as a partner, but as a, as an individual man. I'll, I'll talk on a, on a partner part first. For me, I knew that I needed to be there as much as I can for my wife, mm-hmm. as much as, okay. People told me this doesn't hurt you as bad. 
you have to be there for your wife. And I don't believe that that's necessarily true because at the end of the day, she is both our daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not more hers than she is more mine. Uh, that, that's my personal beliefs. And they also don't know what I saw. Mm-hmm. And so for, for me, it wasn't a matter of who's hurting the most. It was just, we're both hurting mm-hmm. and we just have to be there for each other. And so I decided to be there as much as I can for my wife. And one of the conversations we had in the car one day as we were driving, this is after the funeral. And man, that was another hard one. But after the funeral, we're in the car and, and I told her, I said, listen, six months, six months where you and I don't say a hurtful word, don't do a hurtful action, don't do anything. It's not like we we hurt each other, you know, typically anyway. You know, it's not like her and I always got into arguments or whatever the case may be. It's not, that wasn't our life. But for me, I wanted to be very explicit on this because I never wanted our pain or or the pain period that we were dealing with at that time to equate with one of us being a part of that pain. Mm -hmm. So I never wanted us to go back to 2017 between March to to like August um, or actually that's September. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So from March to September, I did not want six months where we can ever go back to that time and say, oh, you know what? Brian did that thing to me mm-hmm. or Kaziah did that thing to me. Mm-hmm. It puts now a, a negative connotation to myself or to herself, uh, according to the greatest pain that we've dealt with in our lives. Mm-hmm. So I was very keen on making sure that my wife and I, we knew we loved each other. We were there for each other and it made us, grew us and it got us closer than we've ever been. Um, for me personally, though, um, <laughs> I went through a lot of ups and downs. And and so I am typically a very optimistic person. But that also means that, you know, when things happen, I find other ways to try to to deal with things. My students actually came in clutch. And, and I say my students because it was actually student led that they organized to get me a dog. Um, oh, after. my gosh. Yeah. It was amazing. It was because I lost my dog. Oh my goodness! Was, Brian, yeah. my <laughs> my dog died October of 2016, and so they knew I lost my dog. And you know the crazy thing about losing my dog: both of them ran away from the house, picked one up from the street. I couldn't find the other one. I got a call from uh, I think the pound, and they said that he got hit by a car. And I just put so much guilt on myself because it was just. Uh, yeah, I took it hard, um, mm-hmm. to say the least. But the thing that kept going through my head was at least you got one. At least you saved one. At least you were able to get one. And that thing kept ringing through my head for like months. And, and, and then so now when my wife, my daughter passed away and my wife is fighting for her life and she ended up staying alive. It was like that same concept of at least you have one. Like like one is still in your life. And to be honest, I mean, I don't know what I would have losing her was was hard enough to lose both of them at the same time. I don't know what would have happened to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really glad that my wife was uh, able to get through the, um, get through all of that. Mm-hmm. But um, so my students were were huge for me. You know, they helped me out. They, they were there in a sense to just be a sense of comfort, you know. But I found myself pouring into them tremendously because I felt like I didn't have much going on in my life in general. So I just kept pouring in. I kept giving, kept giving, kept giving, kept giving up until June when school ended and now I'm by myself. So what happened was my wife, she she went to 
can't remember which island, but she went to an island for her friends, one of her best friend's wedding. And so I'm by myself now for a whole week where I'm not interacting with people, where I'm just kind of home. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably post my daughter's death. That was definitely the hardest week of my life. So I lived in Indiana two weeks prior to I was going to buy a gun because I I wanted to buy a gun. You know, me and my friends, we were always going to buy guns. Indiana's very loose with their laws over there. And so I was already going to get it. I knew which one I wanted. I used to go to the practice range all the time, X, Y, and Z. And so I went to the place. The guy tells me, if you pay with cash, you get 5% off. I was like, that's, that's not even a question. I'm about to go to the bank right now, pull out the cash. As soon as I left, all I kept hearing was, don't buy the gun. Don't buy the gun. I'm like getting close to the ATM. Don't buy the gun. Don't buy the gun. I'm just like, yo, come on. I've been trying to buy a gun for like four years. I finally got the money for it and then don't buy a gun. So I'm a man of faith and, and, and I, I believe that sometimes you just have to listen to what God says. And mm-hmm. I, I truly believe God spoke to me at that moment. So I decided not to buy the gun. I went home and I was like, whatever, I'll buy it later or something. <laughs> That's what I kept saying to myself. But now this is two weeks later um, into the future. I'm by myself. I'm in the couch. Um, I'm watching The Office. And by the way, big ups to Office because uh, <laughs> that show kept me laughing uh, <laughs> when I was depressed. But I'm on the couch. No one's calling. No one's really checking up on me because I was always the one that, that was strong. I was always the one that people could lean on. I was always the one that people knew uh, he'll deal with. He, if anyone could deal with it, it was Brian. It's BSL. This is how it was, you know, the, the whole concept. And so I'm by myself. I'm alone. And, and, I, and I really wished that at that point, I wished somebody had reached out. But for the first time in my life, I had a suicidal thought. And it's weird, but it felt good. And, and to me, it was just like, it would be great to just blow my... I, that's why I said, I wish I had a gun to just bounce. Because I don't want to feel this pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I said it, I knew it was completely wrong. And I just started crying. And I started, you know, praying to God. And I was just like, man, help me through this. Because, you know, it was just too painful for me to deal with alone. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went through a lot of ups and downs. Um, I started drinking throughout that time as well. By the way, I'm a pastor now. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, but... You know, I started drinking during that period of time. My wife was also very understanding. She didn't necessarily try to stop me from doing anything. She knew I needed my process. But yeah, I started drinking. I started, I I wasn't really going into crazy destructive habits, but I was just completely out of it. Mm -hmm. And um, as soon as that suicidal thought came, it left. And that was the first time and the last time that that I've had that. But I think it was also... It was, and I say, and I say this cautiously, but I feel like I needed to understand what that felt because that year when I went back to school, I was dealing with a lot of kids who were dealing with a lot of suicidal thoughts. So I started to understand what they were going through and, and I was able to speak to them and mm-hmm. speak to uh, their understanding of what that feels like. And they knew, I, I didn't tell them what I went through, but you could tell I, I wasn't someone who was just, yeah, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was just. Yeah, was, you spoke from a place of knowing. Yeah, I spoke yeah. from a place of of understanding. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's why I say it was, it was I feel like I was, it was good to understand how it 
what a suicidal thought felt like in order for me to understand someone else who's going through it, especially kids mm. who go through that and they deal with it a lot. So yeah, the drinking though did stop. This was about a week before I went back to school to be their teacher. <laughs> it's funny. I have these great, really deep conversations with God. And the conversation was really as simple as this. Brian, you ready to stop? That's how. That's what I heard. Brian, you ready to stop? It's, it's time for you to get ready for them. And at that moment, it made sense because I can't be a, be a leader. I can't lead, help these kids deal with all their problems while I'm still indulging in certain things myself. And so as soon as I heard, are you ready? You good? You, you ready to stop? I was like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> and then that was it. I, I think I, I drank once at a friend's wedding since then. And that's it. Uh, so it's been three years since I've even had a sip of anything or anything mm-hmm. else. Wow. But yeah, I, I went through a lot of ups and downs uh, personally in that experience. Mm-hmm. Are there any other factors to you, your life, your personality, your relationship that really kept you moving forward outside of your job as a teacher and your faith? Uh, well, first of all, my wife, for sure. She's mm-hmm. she's an amazing person. You know, the conversations we've had in this was, was huge, was pivotal, necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. So definitely my wife, I have to say, outside of my faith in God, outside of trying to be big Mr. Superhero uh, and, and pouring <laughs> into people while I was still like mm-hmm. almost empty myself. Uh, definitely my wife, she was, she was pivotal in that. Yeah. I, had, I had some great mentors. Oh, I have some great mentors. He's not, not like he passed away. He, he was very helpful in my time as well. His name was Les. You know, he was, it, it, was, it was very reassuring to have someone because I used to talk to him all the time anyway about how I felt, about difficulties I was dealing with. So he was very instrumental as well in that. But I, I can't say that there was so much that 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 was able to to be a huge factor just because, mm-hmm. I mean, I believe God was enough anyway uh, to, to help me through that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible, he says mm-hmm. he, he can, even through the worst situations of our lives, he can turn those things into our good and I actually see how having the loss of my daughter has helped me once again see life differently has helped me to love people differently mm-hmm. it's helped me to pour into people you know better and and it's it's mm-hmm. caused me to typically the long-term effects of what I dealt with has helped me to become a better person so even even if it, I didn't have many factors but the only factor was God that's all I really needed but I also had my mm-hmm. wife I also have um, some friends who were there as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you're right, though, in a sense, or, you know, depending on your personality, depending on on how you perceive things in the world, is it does truly help you to move through certain traumatic experiences in your life. And so for me, mm-hmm. I just knew that I still had life. I still had breath in my lungs. Mm-hmm. What, am, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to continue to move forward? And also, I was very intentional about every every aspect, you know, um, every conversation, every thought, because I knew that period of time in my life was, it was needed for me to be the best that I possibly can in order for me to, to Mm -hmm. walk every single day. So no, it wasn't easy, but I just had to choose life, choose my, you know, choose 
being a better Brian, uh, being a better husband, and ultimately just being a better man for society. The reason that I asked you the question or the reason that it came out the way that it did is because mm-hmm. what you are doing with your life experiences now with mm-hmm. your podcast, which I would love it if you told us about it, yeah, sure, sure. is life-changing. It's game-changing. It is so needed in society. And I feel like the knowing and the life experiences that you bring forward into your podcast makes mm-hmm. it so rich and so valuable. So definitely mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Madcasters. Yeah, sure. So Madcasters, well, first of all, the first three letters are or an acronym for MAD, so it's Make a Difference. Or Madcasters came about as truly was a thought where at first it was, you know, you see so many people who have problems in the world, or you see people who are willing to notify or show this has a problem, there is a problem here, but you don't have too many people who are willing to actually step up and do anything about it. And so I decided that I would build a a space, a platform through Madcasters where we can highlight people, organizations, charities, whatever the case may be, individuals who are actively looking to better their lives um, and also people who are actively making a difference in their communities and in their world. And so I'm I'm big into community. I'm always constantly looking to to help change the homeless, help the homeless. help uh, youth once again. I mean, uh, right now I'm working as a youth pastor, so I'm always working in, in avenues to help young people. My goal, my vision is to build a, is to build my own nonprofit as well and, and to have a specific center geared towards youth and, and family amelioration. So, you know, the, I want people who are game changers, people who are, who are looking to, to change the world. And so I wanted, I wanted to give that platform, but not just for those who are doing it right now, but also for those who are in the process, those who are working hard right now to, to figure things out in their lives. So I don't just highlight organizations and people that, that are known, but I also try to find those who are obscure and, and those who are, who are not too well known right now or not well known at all, uh, to give them that opportunity to show them, uh, to show the world what they're doing. And so... That's what Madcasters is. It, it gives a, a place for people to hear these inspiring stories. And, and hopefully the ultimate goal is to inspire you as a listener to say, I can do this too. And so whatever God has given you, I don't know if, you, if everyone here does believe in God, if they, if they don't, that's okay too. But whatever you know is in your heart to do, you don't have this fear to hold you back. You can hear these stories of people who came from nothing and, and willing to give something to society. Mm. And just for you know that you can do this too. So mm-hmm. that's that's the whole process of Madcasters right now. Yes, I love it. And for anyone listening, definitely check out Madcasters. It's so good. I'm going to put the links at the bottom. But I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. I wanted to ask you my three rapid fire safe haven questions. You ready? Sure, sure. Yeah. What are you most proud of? My son. Mm, he's so cute (laughs) (laughs) my son yeah levi for sure okay he's amazing i love it what would you like to be known for i would like to be known for the for the man who has helped shape the next generation and to help them move throughout from their adolescence into complete young adults Mm. that's how i see my life yes And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? 
my message for sure is this. If you haven't gone through, the, through a, like a traumatic or a bad experience, count yourself blessed, but we all go through tough times in our lives. But the ultimate understanding is that because, and, I, and I've said this multiple times in the podcast, but because you're still here, that means your story is not done yet. That means your journey is not done yet. And because you're here, because you have life, because you're an individual completely valued, you are the only person that will ever be in this world. That is you. No one else can replace you. No one else can replicate you. And so you have something that is so powerful to give to this world. And so for me, I just want to tell you that just remember your value, remember your worth, and remember that there's so much greatness in you. And the greatest thing, the greatest joy we can do is to not just bless ourselves, but to always find ways to also bless those around us. And so whatever you can do, whatever that is, just know you could be the greatest blessing to someone's life. That is so beautiful. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and, and I'm really happy you, you allowed me to have the, the safe space to be able to share my story. Absolutely. Brian, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your time, vulnerability, and the lessons that you shared today. I really appreciate you, and I love what you're doing with Badcasters. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and please share it in your Instagram stories. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and then tag at the Safe Haven Podcast so that I can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. For more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com and I will talk to you next week.